a giant wields a rusty saw. He gloats and hums as he works, slicing through my forehead and into the mind behind it. I've less than four weeks to find out the truth. Grandad calls me Mirren. The twins are stealing sleeping pills and diamond earrings. Mummy argued with the aunts over the Boston house. Ben hates Cuddletown. Carrie roams the island at night. Will has bad dreams. Gat is Heathcliff. Gat thinks I do not know him. And maybe he's right. I take pills, drink water. The room is dark. Mummy stands in the doorway watching me. I do not speak to her. I'm in bed for two days. Every now and again, the sharp pain wanes to an ache. Then, if I'm alone, I sit up and write on the cluster of notes above my bed. Questions more than answers. The morning I feel better, Grandad comes over to Windermere early. He's wearing white linen pants and a blue sport jacket. I'm in shorts and a t-shirt, throwing balls for the dogs in the yard. Mummy is already up at New Claremont. I'm heading to Edgartown, Grandad says, scratching Bosch's ears. You want to come? If you don't mind an old man's company. I don't know, I joke. I'm so busy with these split-covered tennis balls. Could be all day. I'll take you to the bookstore, Katie. Buy you presents like I used to. How about fudge? Grandad laughs. Sure, fudge. Did Mummy put you up to this? No. He scratches his toughly white hair. But Bess doesn't want me driving the motorboat alone. She says I could get disoriented. I'm not allowed to drive the motorboat either. I know, he says, holding up the keys. But Bess and Penny aren't boss here. I am. We decide to eat breakfast in town. We want to get the boat away from the Beechwood dock before the aunts catch us. Edgartown is a nautical sweet pie village on Martha's Vineyard. It takes 20 minutes to get there. It's all white picket fences and white wooden homes with flowery yards. Shops sell tourist stuff, ice cream, pricey clothes, antique jewellery. Boats leave from the harbour for fishing trips and scenic cruises. Grandad seems like his old self. He's tossing money around treats me to espresso and croissants at a little bakery with stools by a window, then tries to buy me books at the Edgartown bookshop. When I refuse the gift, he shakes his head at my giveaway project but doesn't lecture. Instead, he asks for my help picking out presents for the littles and a floral-designed book for Ginny, the housekeeper. We place a big order at Murdoch's Fudge, chocolate, chocolate walnut, peanut butter and panouche. Browsing one of the art galleries, we run into Grandad's lawyer, a narrow, greying fellow named Richard Thatcher. So this is Cadence the First, says Thatcher, shaking my hand. I've heard a great deal about you. He does the estate, says Grandad, by way of explanation. First grandchild, says Thatcher. There's never anything to match that feeling. She's got a great head on her shoulders too, Grandad says. Sinclair blood through and through. They're speaking in stock phrases. He's always done it. Never complain, never explain. Don't take no for an answer. But it grates when he's using them about me. A good head on my shoulders. My actual head is fucking broken in countless medically diagnosed ways, and half of me comes from the unfaithful Eastman side of the family. I'm not going to college next year. I've given up the sports I used to do and clubs I used to be part of. I'm high on Percocet half the time. I'm not even nice to my little cousins. Still, Grandad's face is glowing as he talks about me, and at least today he knows I'm not Mirren. She looks like you, says Thatcher. Doesn't she? Except she's good looking. Thank you, I say. But if you want the full resemblance, I have to tough up my hair. This makes Grandad smile. It's from the boat, he says to Thatcher. Didn't bring a hat. It's always tufty, I tell Thatcher. I know, he says. 
The men shake hands and Grandad hooks his arm through mine as we leave the gallery. He's taken good care of you, he tells me. Mr Thatcher, he nods. But don't tell your mother, she'll stir up trouble again. On the way home, a memory comes. Summer 15, a morning in early July. Grandad was making espresso in the Claremont kitchen. I was eating jam and baguette toast at the table. It was just the two of us. I love that goose, I said, pointing. A cream goose statue sat on the sideboard. It's been there since you, Johnny and Mirren were three, said Grandad. It's the year Tipper and I took the trip to China, he chuckled. She bought a lot of art there. We had a guide, an art specialist. He came over to the toaster and popped the piece of bread I had in there for myself. Hey, I objected. Shh, I'm the granddad. I can take the toast when I want to. He sat down with his espresso and spread butter on the baguette. This art specialist girl took us to antique shops and helped us navigate the auction houses, he said. She spoke four languages. You wouldn't think to look at her. Little slip of a China girl. Don't say China girl. Hello? He ignored me. Tipper bought jewellery and had the idea of buying animal sculptures for the houses here. Does that include the the toad in Cuddletown? Sure, the ivory toad, said Grandad. And we bought two elephants, I know. Those are in Windermere, and monkeys in Redgate. There were four monkeys. Isn't ivory illegal? I asked. Oh, some places, but you can get it. Your gran loved ivory. She travelled to China when she was a child. Is it elephant, elephant tusks? That or rhino? There he was, Grandad, his white hair still thick, the lines on his face deep from all those days on the sailboat, his heavy jaw like an old film star. You can get it, he said, about the ivory. One of his mottos, don't take no for an answer. It had always seemed a heroic way to live. He would stay it when advising us to pursue our ambitions, when encouraging Johnny to try training for a marathon, or when I failed to win the reading prize in seventh grade. It was something he said when talking about his business strategies and how he got Gran to marry him. I asked her four times before she said yes, he'd always say, retelling one of his favourite Sinclair family legends. I wore her down. She said yes to shut me up. Now at the breakfast table, watching him eat my toast. Don't take no for an answer. Seemed like the attitude of a privileged guy who didn't care who got hurt, so long as his wife had the cute statues she wanted to display in her summer houses. I walked over and picked up the goose. People shouldn't buy ivory, I said. It's illegal for a reason. Gat was reading the other day about, don't tell me what that boy is reading, snapped Grandad. I'm informed. I'll get all the papers. Sorry, but he's made me think about cadence. You could put the statues up for auction and then donate the money to wildlife conservation. Then I wouldn't have the statues. They were very dear to Tipper. But Grandad barked. Do not tell me what to do with my money, Katie. That money is not yours. Okay. You're not to tell me how to dispose of what is mine, is that clear? Yes, not ever. Yes, Grandad. I had the urge to snatch the goose and fling it across the room. Would it break when it hit the fireplace? Would it shatter? I balled my hands into fists. It was the first time we talked about Granny Tipper since her death. Grandad docks the boat and ties it up. Do you still miss Gran? I ask him as we head towards New Claremont. Because I miss her. We never talk about her. A part of me died, he says, and it was the best part. You think so? I ask. That is all there is to say about it, said Grandad. I find the lies in the Cuddletown yard. The grass is littered with tennis rackets and drink bottles, food wrappers and beach towels. The three of them lie on cotton blankets, wearing sunglasses and eating potato chips. 
Feeling better? asked Mirren. I nod. We missed you. They have baby oil spread on their bodies. Two bottles of it lie on the grass. Aren't you afraid you'll get burned? I asked. I don't believe in sunblock anymore, says Johnny. He's decided the scientists are corrupt and the whole sunblock industry is a money-making fraud, says Mirren. Have you ever seen sun poisoning, I ask. The skin literally bubbles. It's a dumb idea, says Mirren. We're just bored out of our minds, that's all. But she slathers baby oil on her arms as she's speaking. I lie down next to Johnny. I open a bag of barbecue potato chips. I stare at Gad's chest. Mirren reads aloud a bit of a book about Jane Goodall. We listen to some music off my phone. The speaker, Tinny. Why don't you believe in sunblock again? I ask Johnny. It's a conspiracy, he says, to sell a load of lotion that nobody needs. Aha. Uh-huh. I won't burn, he says. You'll see. But why are you putting on baby oil? Oh, that's not part of the experiment, Johnny says. I just like to be as greasy as possible at all times. Gat catches me in the kitchen looking for food. There isn't much. Last time I saw you was again suboptimal, he says, in the hallway a couple of nights ago. Yeah, my hands are shaking. Sorry. All right. Can we start over? We can't start over every day, Gat. Why not? He jumps to sit on the counter. Maybe this is the summer of second chances. Second, sure, but after that it gets ridiculous. So just be normal, he says, at least for today. Let's pretend I'm not a mess. Let's pretend you're not angry. Let's act like we're friends and forget what happened. I don't want to pretend. I don't want to be friends. I don't want to forget. I'm trying to remember. Just for a day or two, until things seem all right again, says Gat, seeing my hesitation. We'll just hang out until it all stops being such a big deal. I want to know everything, understand everything. I want to hold Gat close and run my hands over him and never let him go. Perhaps this is the only way for now. Be normal now. Right now. Because you are. Because you can be. I've learned how to do that, I say. I hand him the bag of fudge Grandad and I bought in Edgartown, and the way his face lights up at the chocolate tugs at my heart. Next day, Mirren and I take the small motorboat to Edgartown without permission. The boys don't want to come. They're going kayaking. I drive and Mirren trails her hand in the wake. Mirren isn't wearing much. A daisy print bikini top and a denim miniskirt. She walks down the cobblestone sidewalk of Edgartown, talking about Drake Loggerhead and how it feels to have sexual intercourse with him. That's what she calls it every time. Her answer about how it feels has to do with the scent of beach roses mixed with roller coasters and fireworks. She also talks about what clothes she wants to buy for freshman year at Pomona and movies she wants to see and projects she wants to do this summer. Like find a place on the vineyard to ride horses and start making ice cream again. Honestly, she doesn't stop chatting for half an hour. I wish I had her life. A boyfriend, plans, college in California. Marina's going off into her sunshine future as I'm going back to Dickerson Academy to another year of snow and suffocation. I buy a small bag of fudge at Murdoch's even though there's some left from yesterday. We sit on a shady bench. Mirren's still talking. Another memory comes. Summer 15. Mirren sat next to Taft and we're on the steps of our favourite Edgartown clam shack. The boys had plastic rainbow pinwheels. Taft's face was smeared with fudge she'd eaten earlier. We were waiting for Bess, because she had Mirren's shoes. We couldn't go indoors without them. Mirren's feet were dirty and her toenails painted blue. We'd been waiting a while when Gat came out of the shop down the block. 
He had a stack of books under his arms. He ran towards us at top speed as if in a ridiculous hurry to catch us, even though he was sitting still. Then he stopped short. The book on top was Being and Nothingness by Sartre. He still had the words written on the back of his hands. A recommendation from Grandad. Gat bowed foolishly, clownlessly, and presented me with the book at the bottom of the pile. It was a novel by Jackal Moriarty. I'd been reading her all summer. I opened the book to the title page. It was inscribed. For Katie with everything. Everything. Gat. I remember waiting for the shoes so we could go into the clam shack. I tell Marion. She had stopped talking now and looks at me expectantly. Pinwheels, I say. Gat giving me a book. So your memories are coming back, Marion says. That's great. The aunties fought about the estate. She shrugs. A bit. And Grandad and I, we had this argument about his ivory statues. Yeah, we talked about it at the time. Tell me something. What? Why did Gat disappear after my accident? Mirren twists a strand of her hair. I don't know. Did he go back with Raquel? I don't know. Did we fight? Did I do something wrong? I don't know, Katie. He got upset at me a few nights back about not knowing the names of stuff, about not having seen his apartment in New York. There's a silence. He has good reasons to be mad, says Mirren finally. What did I do? Mirren sighs. You can't fix it. Why not? Suddenly Mirren starts choking, gagging like she might vomit, bending over at the waist, her skin damp and pale. You okay? No. Can I help? She doesn't answer. I offer her a bottle of water. She takes it, drinks slowly. I did too much. I need to get back to cuddle down, now. Her eyes are glassy. I hold out my hand. Her skin feels wet and she seems unsteady on her feet. We walk in silence to the harbour where the small motorboat is docked. Mummy never noticed the motorboat was missing, but she sees the bag of fudge when I give it to Taft and Will. On and on, natter and natter, her lecture isn't interesting. I may not leave the island without permission from her. I may not leave the island without adult supervision. I may not operate a motor vehicle on medication. I can't be as stupid as I'm acting, can I? I say the sorry my mother wants to hear. Then I run down to Windermere and write everything I remembered. The clam shack, the pinwheel, Mirren's dirty feet on the wooden steps, the book Gat gave me, on the graph paper above my bed. Start of my second week on Beechwood, we discover the roof of Cuddletown. It's easy to climb up there, we just never did it before because it involves going through Aunt Bess's bedroom window. The roof is cold as hell in the night time, but in the day there's a great view of the island and the sea beyond it. I can see over the trees that cluster around Cuddletown to New Claremont and its garden. I can even see into its house, which has floor-to-ceiling windows in many of the ground-floor rooms. You can see a bit of Redgate too, and the other direction, across to Windermere, then out to the bay. That first afternoon, we spread out food on an old picnic blanket. We eat Portuguese sweetbread and runny cheeses in small wooden boxes, berries in green cardboard, cold bottles of fizzy lemonade. We resolve to come here every day, all summer. This roof is the best place in the world. If I die, I say as we look at the view, I mean, when I die, throw my ashes in the water at the tiny beach. Then when you miss me, you can climb up here, look down, and think how awesome I was. Or we could go down and swim in you, says Johnny, if we've missed you really badly. Ooh, you're the only one who wanted to be in the water of the tiny beach. 
I just meant, I love it here. It'd be a grand place to have my ashes. Yeah, says Johnny. It would be. Mirren and Gat have been silent, eating chocolate-covered hazelnuts out of a blue ceramic bowl. This is a bad conversation, Mirren says. It's okay, says Johnny. I don't want my ashes here, says Gat. Why not, I say. We could all be together in the tiny beach. And the littles will swim in us, yells Johnny. You're grossing me out, snaps Mirren. It's not actually that different from all the times I've peed in there, says Johnny. Gack. Oh, come on, everyone pees in there. I don't, says Mirren. Yes, you do, he says. If the tiny beach water is made of pee now, after all these years of us peeing in it, a few ashes aren't going to ruin it. Do you guys have a plan at your funeral? I ask. What do you mean? Johnny crinkles his nose. You know, in Tom Sawyer, when everyone thinks Tom and Huck and what's his name? Joe Harper, says Gat. Yeah, they think Tom, Huck and Joe Harper are dead. The boys go to their own funeral and hear all the nice memories the townspeople have of them. After I read that, I always thought about my own funeral. Like, what kind of flowers and where I'd want my ashes. And the eulogy too, saying how I, I was transcendently awesome and won the Nobel Prize in the Olympics. What did you win the Olympics for? asked Gad. Maybe handball. Is there handball in the Olympics? Yes. Do you even play handball? Not yet. You better get started. Most people plan their weddings, says Mirren. I used to plan my wedding. Guys don't plan their weddings, says Johnny. If I married Drake, I'd have all yellow flowers, Mirren says. Yellow flowers everywhere. And a spring yellow dress. Like a normal wedding dress, only yellow. And he would wear a yellow cummerbund. He would have to love you very, very much to wear a yellow cummerbund, I tell her. Yeah, says Mirren, but Drake would do it. I'll tell you what I don't want at my funeral, says Johnny. I don't want a bunch of New York art world types who don't even know me standing around in a stupid-ass reception room. I don't want religious people talking about a god I don't believe in, says Gat. Or a bunch of fake girls acting all sad and then putting lip gloss on in the bathroom and fixing their hair, says Mirren. God, I kip. You make it sound like funerals aren't any fun. Seriously, Katie, says Mirren. You should plan your wedding, not your funeral. Don't be morbid. What if I never get married? What if I don't want to get married? Plan your book party then, or your art opening. She's winning the Olympics and the Nobel Prize, says Gat. She can plan parties for those. Okay, fine, I say. Let's plan my Olympic handball party, if it'll make you happy. So we do. Chocolate handballs wrapped in blue fondant. A gold dress for me. Champagne flutes with tiny gold balls inside. We discuss whether people wear weird goggles for handball like they do for racquetball and decide that, for purposes of our party, they do. All the guests will wear gold handball goggles for the duration. Do you play on a handball team? asks Gat. I mean, will there be a whole crew of Amazonian handball goddesses there celebrating victory with you? Or did you win it by your lonesome? I have no idea. You really have to start educating yourself about this, says Gat. You're never going to win gold. We'll have to rethink the whole party if you only get silver. Life feels beautiful that day. The four of us liars. We have always been. We always will be. No matter what happens as we go to college, grow old, build lives for ourselves, no matter if Gat and I are together or not, no matter where we go, we will always be able to line up on the roof of Cuddletown and gaze at the sea. This island is ours. Here, in some way, we are young forever.